You're listening to El Clásico, the cycling podcast at the 2023 Vuelta a España from Barcelona to Madrid. Today we are in Iscar. You are indeed listening to El Clásico. My name is Daniel Freiber. I am the host of this episode and I am indeed in Iscar on a day when La Vuelta a España resumed its journey next to a sugar beet plant and it was all sweetness and light, relatively speaking. I think we can say between Jumbo Visma's Dutch, not Dutch leaders, between their three leaders, the Dutch team, Jumbo Visma, and their three leaders. The refinery in question in La Bañeza this morning belongs to the Azucarera concern and found itself at the centre of controversy a couple of years ago when in response to a Spanish government health campaign entitled Sugar Kills, La Bañeza's mayor publicly lamented that the government was trying to literally kill sugar. Joining me tonight is a man of honeyed tones but also opinions that are never candy coated. It's not Watford's Lionel Burney. Good evening, Daniel. Whereabouts are you? It sounds like you're in quite a busy bar there somewhere. I am in quite a busy bar, um, just adjacent to the finish line. I think there's a bit of a fiesta going on in Iskar after the stage. And, well, it's also a Friday night. And as often is the case at La Vuelta España and other races, the press room today is in a sports centre. And the bar of the sports centre has started to fill up. I would be outdoors, outside the press room. Usually, well, we're usually around by the dustbins, aren't we, at the back? But the heavens have just opened, Lionel, and well, the wind's starting to blow. We talked yesterday about the Asturian weather that spared us. Today, we're back in sort of Dust Bowl, Spain. However, we've got some fairly, well, inclement Asturian-style weather. And Lionel, though, can you kill sugar? Will anyone ever kill sugar? I doubt it. I doubt it. I mean, sugar's probably here to stay, isn't it? I would say so. I would say so. Um, and I said in my intro, sweetness and light at Jumbo Visma today. Well, Lionel, last night, um, Primoz Roglic's comments after the stage caused a bit of a stir, didn't they? They caused me a few problems as well because Spanish radio, one of the Spanish radio journalists here on the race, um, asked me after I did my interview, well, literally stopped me seconds after I'd done my interview with Primoz Roglic on the finish line last night and said, what did he say, what did he say? And I sort of told him in Spanish and obviously the translation is always a bit of an approximation and I didn't realise that, well, my approximation of what Primoz Roglic said would make it onto Twitter or X within seconds of me pronouncing those words and it was a bit of a mistranslation and I spent my most, most of my night, Lionel, correcting journalists of other nationalities who had mistranslated the Spanish mistranslation and um, yeah, it was all, it was all well, a, a lesson in the perils of that particular platform. Is this where you needed the, the accurate, or perhaps didn't need the accurate Spanish uh, phrase for mixed feelings? Is this, uh, is this uh, the cause of the... Yes, well, this is what, this is not what he said. Yeah. I mean, he said, I have my own per- personal thoughts, huh? or something along those lines. And um, yes, which, you know, as discussed with Rob Hatch last night, it all pretty much amounts to the same thing. We've understood fairly loud and clearly now that Primoz Roglic is not, was not terribly happy with the decision taken by Jumbo Visma um, to, well, go with Sepkus effectively and... Um, 
uh, and try to ensure his victory in Madrid on Sunday. I think we all realise that. Now, what we probably won't get, I'm fairly confident as well, is, uh, is an exhaustive explanation from Primoz Roglic as to why he wasn't 100% in agreement with that decision. Um, obviously, Lionel, Primoz Roglic, after those comments last night, was in demand at the start in La Bañeza. I was off on other business. We'll hear, we'll hear a bit about that later. However, some of, my, some of our colleagues at the start did speak to Primoz Roglic. Um, our good friend Gregor Brown of Flow Bikes in particular managed to catch up with Roglic nailed him down on a couple of things won those comments last night let's hear that now shall we um, just a, a bit of a bit of a postscript to what Primoz Roglic had said last night no he's uh, uh, I mean everybody has uh, their own opinions everybody has a uh, possibility to do their own things but uh, for sure I support to, to ride for Sepa uh, and uh, I just hope we can uh, really finish it off I mean like I said uh, everybody should uh, should comment or doing uh, their own things and uh, I mean yeah I'm happy uh, uh, I have uh, also I, I couldn't finish some of the Grand Tours so uh, yeah try to keep the focus uh, to finish it off. Tell us something about Sepkus. Oh just a super nice person huh? I mean uh, one of uh, uh, yeah I can say it, uh, definitely my my close friends and uh, yeah uh, we'll give everything that, uh, that he finishes off. So there you go, Lionel. Um, Roglic sort of sticking to his guns, but reaffirming that nonetheless, in spite of what his feelings might be, he still wants Sepkus to, well, still be very happy for Sepkus to win this Vuelta España. And then secondly, reacting to stories that I suppose that stemmed from the bit of the, the sort of storm in the cappuccino cup last night um rumors not not the first rumors not the first round of rumors linking him with a move away from jumbo visma this was lionel the hot take machine cranked beyond super caliente mm. um someone had decided immediately that roglic's comments were an invitation to well suggest that he he would be packing his bags imminently um that we were possibly in for uh, another, well, we'll talk about the Superman Lopez stage later, but literally that um, he might not even get to stage 20 before telling his teammates it had been a pleasure and that he was stopping here wow. and heading off to another packing, team. Packing, um, his, Movistar. packing his Jumbo bag for life with uh, his, his few possessions. I imagine a very sparse number of possessions Roglic brings with him to a Grand Tour. But uh, Movistar, De Movistar being rumoured. Yeah. Yes. Uh, let's hear what he said in response to that sort of rumor about a rumor this morning. What yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, these are uh, for me good things. Huh? As long as uh, someone wants me, that means that obviously uh, I'm good. Huh? And as, as fast as uh, it's nothing going around, then uh, yeah, normally I'm not, not so good. But uh, yeah, like I said, but we, we try to finish it this whole. We shouldn't believe the rumors. No, not really. Huh? Thank you. Daniel, was this was this also you slightly mistranslating? He's actually on the lookout for a new mobile phone contract. Uh, it, all, <laughs> it all got very confused. <laughs> Could very well be. Could very well be. Um, well, the question is, Lionel, the question was, further question from this morning was whether he was going to be enjoying or not enjoying today's stage. Um, a, a flat one, potentially, as we heard from Rob Hatch last night, a windy one. 
across the Meseta Central. It's about time, Lionel, we found out what happened in today's stage. El resumen de la etapa. The tale of the etapa. Yes, Daniel, stage 19, the final Friday of the Vuelta a España, 177 kilometers to Iscar. And it was an absolute humdinger of a stage, wasn't it? Action all the way. Well, they were pedaling all the way, at least. It was uh, a, a pretty formulaic sprint stage in the sense that four riders got away. Clement Davy of Groupama FDJ, Paul Lapera of AG2R, Mathis Lebert of Arkea, and uh, the only non-Frenchman was the Czech rider Mikhail Schlegel of Cajarural. They were never more than about two minutes and 50 ahead. They were just sort of trundling through the countryside. Uh, not an awful lot to really uh, write home about today's stage was there, although there was a very nice lingering shot of the castle at Torre Lobaton. Did you see that, Daniel? I did not, Lionel. Well, it actually featured in the Oscar-nominated film El Cid, which uh, featured Charlton Heston and Sophia Loren. That is about the most notable thing that happened in the first 175 and a half kilometres of the stage, really. There was a big crash once, uh, once the break had been caught and they were gearing up for the sprint. Just over a kilometre to go, big crash when the Alpecin de Koenig lead-out rider just took a half turn to look over his shoulder to check that Caden Groves, the hot favourite for his fourth stage win, was still on his wheel. Do you happen to know which I believe, rider it was? Yeah, I believe it was Tobias Bayer. Uh, initially, I and, and uh, some of my Belgian colleagues in the press room thought it might be Planker, uh, Eddie Planker. Of course, Robert Hayes has left the race and he is Caden Groves' lead-out man, but I believe it was Bayer. Well, he went down. Caden Groves also went down in his green jersey, dashing his hopes. And then it led to a sprint finish. And for, well, for a long while, it looked like Filippo Gannat was going to succeed this week where he came up just short last week, given a great lead out by Ineos Grenadiers. We'll probably hear a bit more about that. But no, Gannat did not pull off his first significant Grand Tour sprint victory he was pipped by his compatriot Alberto Dainese of DSM. A great uh, stage win for him. And, well, a bit of a pattern emerging here because he won in the final week of the Giro ahead of another Italian rider with a fine track pedigree, Jonathan Milan. And so Dainese wins the stage for DSM. And... I mean, more or less, that is all there is to talk about from today's stage. It was one of those ones where I got lots done in the garden. I did quite a bit of tidying up. I had one eye on the race, and I was just hoping that Iskar was going to be some kind of lovely town, Daniel, where you got there with a good two or three hours of the race still to go, and you managed to have a nice lunch in a restaurant rather than have to rely on the press buffet. Not knocking the press buffet, uh, but it no. is, it's one of those little joys of a Grand Tour, isn't it? Being able to get out from uh, captivity and have a nice lunch. It's something that Francois Tomaso insists on at least once. Uh, Lionel, I'm, su I'm, I'm surprised that you're suggesting this is something that I may have done because I'm not known for that kind of 
uh, routine on grand tours. Am I? No. Um, I'm not a big lunch. No. I'm not a big lunch guy. You're, you're more. No. You're, you're, you're quite happy as the hamster in the wheel, aren't you? Going from start to finish via the press buffet. Yeah. You know, yeah. little little suck on the water bottle, nibble of the carrot, back in the wheel. Pretty much. <laughs> Pretty much. And I've got some seeds. I take some seeds on me with Grand Tours, flax seeds and so forth. And they've they're currently spilled. Um, they capsized the other day into my suitcase. <laughs> so I could have been nibbling on the flax seeds at the bottom of my suitcase. Uh, Lionel, you mentioned uh, Alberto Dainese, the, the, the sort of pattern of his Grand Tour stage wins. There's another really curious pattern, which is that I think, and this needs to be verified. I didn't have time to do it after the stage. But I think Alberto Dainese has won every stage in Grand Tours in the last two years that has not featured a climb, a classified climb of any description. They're quite a rarity and it's a common thread to all of his Grand Tour stage wins. They've featured zero climbs, um, which is unusual. And it's unusual because yesterday, for example, I was standing on top of the summit at La Cruz de Linares and I noticed, and I've noticed on other occasions, and this is well known, that Alberto Dainese climbs pretty well. He was, um, he was far from one of the back markers yesterday, but it just so happens, and maybe it is more than a coincidence, but it, it does just so happen that he seems to thrive on these days that are very, very flat. Well, uh, you may well be right. He won at Keole, wasn't it, in the Giro, and that had a profile that looked a bit like the sort of ski jump that Primoz Roglic would enjoy downhill from the start and then flat and his victory at last year's Giro was at Reggio Emilia which as everybody knows billiard table flat that stage isn't it uh, whichever way they approach more or less um, whether that's the only Grand Tour stages in the past couple of years that haven't featured a classified climb of any description I'd have to do a bit more research but certainly yeah there is a pattern there Lionel, should we hear from some of the movers and shakers from today's stage? Um, let's hear first from one of the strategists at DSM, Firminic. That is the direct sportive, Phil West. He's going to tell us a bit more about how that Dainese victory came together. And you mentioned Ineos Grenadiers and their excellent lead out. And Filippo Ganna coming pretty close to taking his first Grand Tour stage win in a bunch sprint. He's won... He's won Grand Tour stages before, but not in bunch sprints. Um, Geraint Thomas was the guy who, well, Castroviejo, I think, was the rider who really sort of started to crank up the train um, in the last 10 kilometers. But Geraint Thomas certainly did a very big turn um, inside the last three or four. So we're going to hear from him as well. So first Phil West, then Geraint Thomas. Well, Phil, I was going to say uh, an excellent day, and it is still a pretty excellent day. We've just seen yeah. Max Paul come in. He looks as though he's had a, a get-down, as you refer to it in the trade. Um, yeah. But let's talk about the sprint, first of all. Dainese, I, I think this is just a coincidence, but he's won three Grand Tour stages, and all three oh, of none, none of them have had any climbs in. Yeah. This, in spite of the fact yesterday, I saw him climbing pretty well. Yeah. But just talk to us about well, whether you saw this coming. Yeah, I mean, historically, we know Alberto handles the third week of a Grand Tour really well. Uh, and you're right, he does he does climb well as well for a sprinter. <clears throat> but I think, um, let's be honest, in the first uh, opportunities, we made some mistakes as a team. Um, and we wanted to really put that right today. And so, yeah, that's what we set out to do. And, and yeah, the parkour was pretty straightforward. Probably the most straightforward that we've seen. So less surging and, and, and less change of pace. Um, and actually, for a team that's kind of 50-50 
punchy guys and, and climbers. That works quite nice in the final. And yeah, we just, to be honest, we did the basics in a really good way. The communication was nice. Uh, we picked our spot. We just kept it simple. And then came at a moment when we knew the road was going to open. Um, and yeah, it was a really nice team effort, actually. And then in the end of a crash, 1.5k to go, took Sean out and, uh, and Max. Both a bit dusted up, but okay. And then Alberto was able to continue and, and do a, a nice final. So when you say picking your spot, do you have to be quite prescriptive about that? So you're literally saying you take it to 700, you take it to 500, you take it to 300, or do you still need a bit more flexibility than that? You need the flexibility, but when we say about picking a spot, it's more about where we sit on the road. So arbitrarily, we know the GC teams will also push into 3K to go. So in that situation, when somewhere like Jumbo's pushing or Ineos is pushing, you know, like they were today, we take a spot directly behind them, we keep the side closed, and then we protect each other in that area, and, and then from there we can go to the next thing. We try to not to get into you go to a K, you go, because it's so dynamic. When you get dr drawn into that perfect scenario, I think it's a trap. Um, so you really have to react, create some space, and then when you create the space, then you can, you can do a good final. And Phil, it's further vindication for your team. You know, often you guys turn up to a Grand Tour, people look at the ages of the riders and they say, well, this is like a development team. Yeah. Um, and you've won another one. It, it, it must feel a bit like vindication. Yeah, it's nice. I mean, it, it's, it's no uh, surprise. We have a really young team. We were actually talking about last night. We also have a really young group of staff here. Maybe not for me, but like <laughs> definitely some other guys. And, uh, I, you know, we obviously we had Max in the, in the final yesterday as well. Um, and I think they're showing that even though they are a young team, they operate on a really high level. And, and that's the kind of work we want to do with these guys. And uh, yeah, it's a really good, really good sign for the future. Yeah, in the bus we said we'd leave it late, hiding the wheels before the corner with two and a half to go. Come on the right there, but then we hit the front with Castro with about 10k to go. And uh, I was trying to hold him back, but he was just keen and we were like, okay, we'll try it. But Castro did a monster turn and then I made sure we got into that corner first and then it was about going as long as possible, really. And we knew it was a good finish for Pipo. You know, straight, not too technical, obviously. But uh, I haven't seen it, but I've got a feeling we probably left him a little short because, yeah, I kind of, DSM came up and boys came past me, I don't know, 15, 1700 meters to go. We've only two guys in front of people then, so it's a bit, definitely would have been a bit short. But uh, it was nice to get involved. To be honest, at the start of the stage, I wasn't uh, overly keen risking it and stuff, but. It's amazing what a few caffeine gels do and uh yeah once you see that finish and all the boys you you, you get up for it and uh we had to have a go because well that's what we've been trying to do all race the efforts are encouraging towards the end of a three-week grand tour as we also saw in the giro although it's a different rider these efforts are encouraging yeah yeah i thought yeah let's just get stuck in castro like i said was real strong and um yeah i tried to uh Dig in, go as deep and as long as possible. Yeah, and you said you guys went quite early. Is that always a danger when it's, uh, I'm not going to say a straightforward day, but a day when you know it's going to end in a sprint finish and it's a straight road as well? Yeah, and it was, it was an easy day compared to what we've done the rest of this race. But there's a lot of tired guys and, um, yeah, it was just just about committing. And, yeah, it is e it's easy to go early. It's hard to wait, and uh, like I say, we did go a bit too early, but the commitment was there. Unfortunately, um, 
yeah, people didn't quite finish it off, but it's more down to us, I think. Science in Sport is supporting the cycling podcast at the 2023 Vuelta España. Science in Sport, fueled by science. So, Lionel, heard there from Phil West and Garant Thomas. A couple of interesting things um, I thought there to pick up on. Garant Thomas talking about the difficulty, well, particularly on these days, days like this, in the third week of a Grand Tour, when it is pretty inevitable. It's, everyone knows and everyone knew today, as soon as they saw that the wind wasn't blowing as much as some feared, um, that it was going to be a bunch sprint. That creates a sort of an impatience, doesn't it? And Or it can do. And certainly Geraint Thomas suggesting there that it was a, a sort of impatience that possibly denied Filippo Ganna the stage win today because it, it didn't, didn't need much more, did it? It needed sort of 50 metres more and he may well have picked up that first Grand Tour stage win uh, Grand Tour. And then DSM, as I sort of said to Phil West, this is a team that gets kind of maligned at mocked even at times um, because they do come into races like the Vuelta with incredibly, incredibly young teams. In fact, I don't think they are the youngest at this Vuelta España. Um, they've got a couple of experienced riders, uh, Juan Balde and uh, Combo and Chris Hamilton as well. And Krupama is certainly younger. But they often punch above their weight, don't they? They do, and they stick to their approach. That's, you know, do you remember a few years ago at the Tour de France where they were almost kind of riding a parallel race to everybody else? And then, um, you know, we, we've, we have seen this and heard a bit about the way that they are preparing for future goals, perhaps in, you know, an unconventional way. And I do remember, that, was it the lockdown tour? the one where people looked at their start list for the race and thought well this is it a was. team this is a team that's got absolutely nothing here why they're bothering yeah. why yeah and uh, actually mark here she was in the break over the opening weekend and came very close to winning a stage i think Soren crow anderson won a stage towards the end um details are sort of lost in the fog of my mind but they're a team that even when things aren't going well for them they don't seem to you know, the morale doesn't seem to dip. It's not for everyone. I mean, the number of riders that have left the team is uh, over the years, is, you know, moved on to better things uh, or bigger things, perhaps, uh, is uh, notable. But uh, they've got a method and they stick to it. And, you know, <laughs> I suppose Matt Winston, who I don't think he's there, is he, on the Welter, no, is he? Not. No, no. Um, but Phil West is kind of cut from the same cloth. They are devising their plans on a race-by-race, day-by-day perhaps even hour by hour basis and they they demand a kind of full commitment to that plan and then they they will have a kind of debrief and it does sound all a bit kind of powerpoint presentations and uh you, you know sort of almost corporate but it does seem to work for them and they get better results perhaps than um you you might otherwise expect i mean Dinesi is a is a quick sprinter and I mean, you've hit on it now that any time there's a flat stage without any climbing whatsoever, he is the man to beat. Stake the family chateau on him. Uh, Lionel, today they actually lost a part of their lead out in that crash, the same crash that 
Biffel, Caden Groves, and Sean Flynn was one of the riders mm. who was down. And Max Poole also, I saw him come over the line. He, he looked pretty beaten up. He was still smiling, um, having contributed at least in some way to his team winning the stage today. But as you say, having a plan is key. And I think, you know, just talking to a lot of the riders here at the Vuelta, we, we've talked over the last few days and we're going to come on to talk more about Jumbo Visma in a minute, but they have sort of monopolized the race to a certain extent and some of the riders in other teams have felt that this has been a sort of zombified procession for them through the race and they haven't been able to, well, become actors in the race. I spoke a few days ago to Lewis Askey, the, he's a debutant for Groupama FDJ, young British rider, and he said he was finding that hard and that's it, it's something that's integral to, to Grand Tour racing, not necessarily particularly to this Vuelta, but there are a lot of days for riders who are neither climbers nor bunch sprinters, and even for those categories of riders, where there isn't an obvious focus, and you just, you, you, fit, you can probably feel a little bit directionless, and that's something that I get the impression DSM never feel, because sometimes the plan for them can be as simple and as trivial, you might say, as positioning a rider at a certain part of the course, on a certain bend. And if everyone goes back to the bus in the evening with that goal, that brief having been fulfilled, then it is considered a success and they move on to the, to the next day. Yeah, I mean, Phil West made that point, didn't he, about how it was about being in a particular spot on the road. And, you know, that's the sort of thing that can quite easily get mocked in the kind of winner-takes-all um, approach to Grand Tour stages you know everyone remembers the winner and, and second is kind of first loser and I've always kind of sort of admired that about Matt Winston's calm approach and Phil West as I say has the, has the same sort of demeanour um, like you say the win in the, uh, in, in the actual stage I'm not saying for a second it's secondary to everyone sticking to the plan and being in the in in the right place on the road because Phil West did also say that flexibility is is something else that has to be taken into account so it's not like they're dogmatic about it uh, but I sometimes have had the impression that particularly at the tour when they've not had a good time you sometimes get a feeling that they're riding almost a parallel race and just focusing on what they're doing and maybe in a sort of the sense of a morale point of view that's something that helps them there's always something to learn there's always something to be done in the race they don't seem to have the same sort of listless directionless um uh, feel around the team bus when things aren't going well in terms of the actual results sheet Lionel. Just on Askey, sorry. Askey was a decent seventh. I think that's his third top ten of the race so far. Uh, but it's an interesting point you made about uh, his comments about Jumbo Visma because it has felt like it, it's restricted other people just because the overall race has been completely sewn up. It's Even when somebody is a long way ahead in a Grand Tour and it's clear they're probably going to win unless there's some kind of disaster, there's usually something else to race for, a podium position or um, you know, or stage wins even. But Jumbo-Visma have been kind of monopolising on the sort of stages that you would expect them to be very strong on. And I do wonder whether that has, you know, filtered down through the entire peloton and kind of restricted the horizons for other teams. Lionel, should we officially now turn our thoughts to Jumbo Visma? And usually, as of about a week ago, when we do that, we hear this. Lionel, 
We didn't have you on last night. We had Rob Hatch. Rob Hatch apologised, needlessly apologised um, last night. He said that, you know, when he's doing his commentary work, it's difficult for him to express forthright opinions. But last night he was going to break with that tradition and he was going to express a forthright opinion. And it's an opinion that a lot of people have shared in this Vuelta España, namely that Jumbo Visma, Jumbo Visma had scored several PR own goals maybe with their tactics with their strategy in this Vuelta a España and it left Rob said I think he said a bit of a bitter aftertaste so it would leave a bitter aftertaste if as we expect to happen Sepkus is celebrating overall victory in Madrid on Sunday Lionel I find myself changing my mind on this I'm very I find myself being very pliable and impressionable about this because at the bus this evening at the Jumbo Visma bus I had a chat with Adi Engels one of the director sportifs here and he made the point to me he sort of argued that well Sepkus as we all know as we've talked about many times on the podcast has no real experience as a Grand Tour leader he doesn't even have experience as a leader in any length of stage race really at Jumbo Visma unless you want to go back to the Tour of Utah in his debut season and Adi said that they simply could not be sure and they simply could not be fully confident until after the Anglia the Anglia is such a brutal climb that until the summit that day then all three of the leaders had to race as though well the finish line of the welter was effectively at the top of the Anglia and that was the appropriate point to make the decision. Now, my initial feeling yesterday was that they'd made the decision too late. I said on the podcast they should have made the decision on the second rest day when they apparently did have a conversation. And that was where they decided to pursue this um, strongest rider wins line. I've sort of changed my mind. Interesting. I mean, Jumbo Visma have kind of rescued a PR disaster or salvaged uh, you know, a kind of coherent narrative from the jaws of a PR disaster over the last 36 hours, haven't they? Clearly now backing Sepkus. Uh, Jonas Vingegaard just kind of, I mean, he'd done a lot of work on the final climb yesterday, just losing a few crucial seconds. I mean, again, tiny little things tell the wider public something, don't they? And, and just losing those seconds just... Um, kind of increased the, the security of Sepkus's hold on the red jersey and just said a lot more than whatever it was, eight or nine seconds uh, re- really does say. Um, I don't know. I, I suppose, you know, there's so many complexities to road racing, stage racing and grand tour racing in particular. I do get that perhaps sense of insecurity. Can we rely on Sepkus to hold up? But they had both Vingegaard and Roglic just poised not having to really do anything not really having to open up time gaps over the rest it wasn't like they were sort of fifth sixth and seventh on the road with Ayuso or you know um, Almeida up the road or whoever they were one two and three on the road and I think it came down purely to the optics of uh, you know, in, in that moment, in that split second, all they really needed to do was kind of ride to the top together. I suspect but, had they done that, they would have been sort of criticised from the other angle. Uh, oh, they're not taking the race seriously. They're treating it like a training race. So, you know, they're all, you know, too happy, um, you know, 
crossing the line arm in arm. They've been criticised when they finished one, two, three in stages of Paris Nice, for goodness sake, for, for kind of you know, sharing the spoils amongst themselves the way they see fit. So in a funny way, they were in a position where whatever they did, they would get criticism from one angle or another. And when all is said and done, it doesn't really matter what any of us think. It, what matters is whether or not Jumbo Visma's team management and the team's partners and sponsors are happy with the outcome and happy with how the race has unfolded. And I guess once all this dies down after Madrid, they will be very happy. And it will probably be the the kind of the, the it will be the fairy tale of the three options, which is that the the rider who has mm. supported the other two to such a great extent in their victories gets what might be a career one you know a one-off moment to stand on the top step of the podium in one of the three grand tours so it, the, your, your kind of opinion on it changing one day to the next depending on the last person you've spoken to one is, conversation is, yeah is, yeah it's kind of um it's kind of how the world reacts isn't it you know, everything yeah. kind of the, the the heat of the Angliru has already faded a bit, and people are reappraising. And I don't think anyone will get to the end and think, well, you know, um, they, they probably won't focus on um, the, 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 any inter-team wrangling. They'll just see the final result, and people who are the, the people who are going to be happiest are the ones that that do kind of have that romantic vision of cycling you know all of that those unwritten rules about defending the leader's jersey and riding as a team and and um and and letting the the super domestique have their moment in the sun uh, are likely to be happiest but that's not to disregard the fact that two world-class riders who have won multiple grand tours between them are having to shelve their own ambitions and that's not something and one that, of them is clearly unhappy about it and 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 he's entitled to be unhappy about it you know in a, any team a rugby team a football team any team sport um star players get dropped or you know they get asked to play out of position yeah. or whatever that is part of being in a team sport and i mean i know it's francois Tomazo's kind of cliche if you like but cycling on the face of it gives this impression of being an individual sport but it's not really it's a team sport that's practiced by individuals that's Francois's line and I think it's it's really appropriate in this scenario yeah sometimes I always think and I've said this before cycling has very or the cycling public has very high moral expectations for cycling as well and sometimes it's it doesn't feel like a very adult or realistic or pragmatic way to look upon what is in, a, in essence a competitive sport and a competitive situation. I mean, it struck me, Lionel, that we heard the other day, and we've heard this before, we spoke to him at length last winter when they were our team of the year. We heard Richard Plugger talk about communication and this exchange of this sort of cross-pollination of opinions and uh, these very open conversations that they would have. And... He suggested that this is what the meeting was like a couple of nights ago. It also struck me, though, that what happened on the Angleroo was very much coherent with that because it was almost that conversation playing out writ large on the road on bikes. They were sort of figuring it out as they as they rode, as they pedaled effectively. It's just that we don't usually see the workings of those conversations, of those debates, which which end up in resolutions and those um, differing opinions those sort of incoherent what seem like incoherent moves in one direction or another they can 
well, it can give the impression of something that's quite ugly and something that's dysfunctional. But actually, it, it is in those, those sort of contrasts and those differences of opinion that harmon a certain harmony can emerge or through um, those differing opinions that a certain harmony can emerge. And that's certainly what they're suggesting has now happened and it's all healthy and it's all good. You know, we talked last night about how we'll all feel when we see them all on the podium um, collecting their flowers, which, you know, they should collect flowers because it's an outstanding team performance. Um, and the other question, of course, is what happens beyond this year? Um, will Roglic be able to put whatever dissatisfaction he has to one side? What is the nature of this dissatisfaction? Where does it come from? You know, I had a text from a former team manager last night who said it's as simple probably as Roglic having been, well, felt ambushed by... Vingegaard being sent to the Vuelta, which which I think was was kind of marinating that idea in their heads over the winter, but it wasn't firmed up until the tour, and he might have felt blindsided by that. And similarly with Sepkus, I think it was a vague idea that Sepkus might also do the Vuelta as well, but then suddenly he found both of them at the team hotel essentially essentially in Barcelona yeah. well Roglic is the one that has made the bigger sacrifice in the sense that he forwent the Tour de France and didn't go to that and you have to assume that the sort of flip side of that deal was look you're going to be the leader for the Giro and the Vuelta and that hasn't turned out to be the case so yeah but these are the things that team management um, of, of successful teams has to cope with and we are all entitled to watch the race and, and have an opinion on it as informed or ill-informed as it may be because at the end of the day people watching the sport are doing so for uh, broadly speaking entertainment but also for their own you know millions of micro reasons as well there'll be loads it's it's you know, all the Sepkus fans out there will be uh, will have been really pretty angry on the angry Lou. Um, but um, I, I suppose your point about sort of getting a glimpse of the the team meeting on the climb of the Angliru is a good one. It's that just at that at that moment when Sepkus was uh, fading off the wheel, it was a bit like the team managers are saying, right, well, Sepkus is a leader and, and both Vingegaard and Roglic chose that as a moment to sort of stop listening and look wistfully out of the team bus window into yeah, the middle they distance. They left the family therapy they, session at that yeah, point. <laughs> <laughs> pretend they weren't, they weren't really hearing. But it's, it's, it's enlivened the final week of the welter, which could have been incredibly boring if they'd ridden to a sort of... Um, just a, a tedious script of um, you know, getting getting around uh, to the finish. Just you know, they they could have they could have ridden a lot less kind of entertainingly, a lot less aggressively, and ultimately their own strength and dominance is the one thing that has kind of backfired on them. Because had there been another rider, any other rider from the top sort of six or seven on GC, in with Vingegaard, Roglic, and Kuss on the Angliru and that rider had been with Vingegaard and Roglic, there wouldn't have been anything like the same scrutiny on this because tactically they could say, well, no, we made the call that we had to just go with Ayuso or whoever it was. And, and so the fact that it was the three of them on the road meant that from the outside, the decision should have been very simple. Just stick with the red jersey, get him over the line in the, the, the quickest time possible. And as we've talked about over the last few days they didn't do that and that is why they were criticised really but 
they have done a good job over the sort of 24, 36 hours of, of uh, getting their story straight, if you like. And um, yeah, it, they will no doubt get to Madrid, uh, assuming there isn't one final incredible twist in the tale tomorrow, which looking at the profile, you just never know. You just never know. El ritmo de la vuelta. The rhythm of the vuelta. This is El Ritmo de la Vuelta, in which we strain to establish tenuous links between obscure Spanish pop songs selected as the official anthems of the Vuelta a España. And what is occurring in 2023? The year today is 2013, so we're looking back, or going back 10 years to a Vuelta that finished exactly to the day a decade ago, having begun on August 24th in Galicia, in a week when Robin Thicke's controversial blurred lines topped the US singles chart, would indeed be a controversial welter that would blur the lines of conventional cycling wisdom and much besides. But the race's official song was a different one and was called Mambo by Carlos Nunez, one of the foremost exponents of Galician flute or gaita music. Once the Vuelta had left Galicia, it turned into an unlikely duel between that year's Giro champion Vincenzo Nibali and the 41-year-old American Chris Horner, who was riding for Radio Shack. Horner took the jersey, took the red jersey on stage 10 to the Alto de Hathayana, lost it the following day in the TT in Tarazona, then regained it on the Alto de Naranjo two days from the race finale in Madrid. Horner duly became the oldest Grand Tour winner in history after a thrilling defence of his narrow lead on the Angliru on the penultimate day, celebrated by visiting the superior gastronomic emporium known as McDonald's, which incidentally he had also done regularly during the race. He would soon become embroiled in an unseemly row over a missed dope test on the morning after his triumph. Finally though, he was exonerated of any wrongdoing and retains that title, oldest ever Grand Tour winner, also the honour of the last US rider, American rider to win a Grand Tour. Except, of course, we think is going to win the Vuelta a España on Sunday. Do you know what that means? That means that mystic Joe Dombrowski will have a big smile on his face, not just because it's his compatriot that's going to take the spoils. Mm. Let's go back in time again to the start of the year, our big predictions pod. And this is what Astana's Joe Dombrowski said in that. Hi, I'm Joe Dombrowski. I ride for Astana, Kazakhstan, and my predictions for 2023 are that Alejandro Valverde will ride the Vuelta and that Jumbo will win all three Grand Tours. Lionel, phenomenal stuff from Joe Dombrowski. Uh, Well, he's right, isn't he? He's 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 already right. Whether Kuss wins or not, he's going to be right. (laughs) He's going to be right. Fantastic Um, speculation. Fantastic speculation. And Lionel, I think we've been saying, I think I did say a few days ago incorrectly that this would be the first time a team has swept the podium in a Grand Tour. Not actually true. 1966, Cas, Cas Cascol um, took the first three spots on general classification um, thanks to Francisco Gabica, uh, Eusebio Vélez and Carlos Echerabia. 
And they also had seven of the top ten. Now, I looked into this Vuelta a little bit. It was only 2,900 kilometers long, 18 stages. But it was also a strange addition because it almost didn't take place. The Correo Español, who used to organize the Vuelta win, well, they were experiencing financial problems. And, well, the Spanish sports minister had to step in at the last minute to save the race. What it did mean was that the field was pretty weak that year. Nonetheless, an extraordinary achievement and it will be even more extraordinary when it if um, Jumbo Visma do hold on on well right through to Sunday Lionel Joe Dombrowski's second prediction Alejandro mm. Valverde would come back and ride the Vuelta a España well coincidentally Lionel a source a source within the peloton sent me a message this morning telling me that he had heard on cycling, the pro cycling grapevine that Alejandro Valverde would make a comeback and ride the Vuelta a España next year. And this was an excellent source. This, this wasn't a Burger King source or a McDonald's source. This was a top-notch tier one source. I went straight this morning to Eusebio Unthue, the Movistar team manager, and I asked him, is it true that Alejandro Valverde is meditating a comeback? Uh, Eusebio let out a, a, a deep, long sigh, and he said that in actual fact, uh, this is something that is very much, well, it's very much on Valverde's agenda, or had been on Valverde's agenda, that he was very much, he has been for a while now, thinking about a comeback. And this is not something that Eusebio himself is particularly enthusiastic about, or indeed Movistar, they don't want him to make a comeback to racing next year and it sounds as though it's not going to happen but quite seriously sort of quite solemnly in fact this is a rider of course that Eusebio Unthue spent 20 years with effectively as his team manager and he said he's struggling he's struggling to adapt to life outside of the peloton he hasn't really found his new role yet um, he's mm. doing various things with Movistar with the team but nothing as yet that's fully satisfying him. In the meantime, he's training with his old historical training buddies in Murcia. He's training as well as ever, setting you know, supersonic times up his local climbs. And this has indeed um, whetted his appetite for a comeback to the peloton. Um, but as I said, I, I don't think it's going to happen. Um, it sounded very much to me as though Eusebio is, is trying and people at Movistar are trying to dissuade him. Um, Eusebio said literally, you have to respect the passage of time and everything comes to an end and it's time. He said he's still living like a monk, but it's, it's time that he took off his monk's robes. Do you say in English? The monks wear robes? Uh, his cloth? Yeah, it's interesting this. I mean, uh, during the Tour de France, I made a kilometre zero with Matt Rendell, who has written a kind of a biography of sorts of Alejandro Valverde. It's a very interesting book worth checking out. Uh, it's called Green Bullet. And uh, the sense you get from that book is of a, a man entirely obsessed with the process of being a professional rider. The routine of going training every day, of uh, doing an additional hour before meeting up with these training buddies and then riding with them and then doing an additional hour afterwards and, and all of that. And given that Valverde, well, he's 43, so he retired at the age of 43. He would be 44 next year, of course. That's how age works, unfortunately. It ticks ever upwards. Um, I, 
I don't know whether it's... Well, I mean, it obviously is Unzue's place to make that call, isn't it? It's his team, he's in charge, he's got to make the big calls. But I don't know. Would, would, would it require... I think someone should investigate Joe Dombrowski's crystal ball. Uh, Lionel, talking <laughs> of crystal balls, I've been making predictions over the last few days, haven't I? My prediction, my grand prediction of this Vuelta a España is that on the back of Sepp Cruz's probable victory in this Vuelta a España, the world of cycling will wake up to the reality that is staring them in the face that everyone who wants to win a Grand Tour, aspire to do, aspires to do well in a Grand Tour, should be riding all of the Grand Tours and possibly nothing else that this is a winning formula um, as stated yesterday and the day before Lionel as long as Sepkus is, is in the red jersey I'm going to be asking a different person every day no one has fully fully subscribed to my crackpot theory yet but I'm still hopeful that we'll find someone Lionel I'm going to give you a choice to because I did I, I spoke to two people um, this morning we'll hear from both of them one tonight one tomorrow I'm, I'm going to give you a choice you want rider or coach tonight Lionel I'll go rider. Go we'll rider. go rider. Okay, we'll go rider. We'll go with a man who, who rode all three Grand Tours um, four years ago, 2019. Thomas de Hent, Lotto Destiny veteran rider. He won a stage in the Tour de France in that season. And he is in the hot seat this evening for my brainwashing experiment. Um, we'll call it the meeting of the day, Encuentro del Día. El Encuentro del Día. The meeting of the day. Um, that's only possible if you don't crash, don't get sick or anything. Uh, the, I think if you uh, finish one of those Grand Tours uh, in a bad way, like really with sickness or, uh, or with a bad crash or something, then uh, you... you, you you don't go out of the of a Grand Tour at 100%, and uh, it's only three weeks in between to recover and prepare. Then, then it's not possible. But if you stay healthy, like Sepp did, then I think it's uh, possible. Yeah. You did it once in 2019. You also won a stage in the Tour that year. But what were your big sort of takeaways in terms of how it? What, changed your body or what it gave you what was good about it what was not good about it for your personal kind of career yeah i just wanted to do this uh once because uh only mario ars was the only belgium that did this so i wanted to do this as a challenge but in the second grand tour i was at my best in uh, so in the tour de france i was at my best but it just felt like in the velta uh, i was not bad i was in uh, in a really good shape but i couldn't go over the limit anymore so maybe I did something wrong in uh, in between the Grand Tours, uh, like not enough recovery with the criteriums uh, or not enough uh, training, I don't know. So that's uh, something that they can still figure out, but it's also mentally really hard to be there uh, for three times one month, uh, be away from home for three times one month. It's, it's still different than uh, training camp and uh, one week races. So you have to be mentally also very strong for this. That's why I only could do it one one time. I was uh, especially mentally fatigued after uh, the third one. Did you do between those Grand Tours, did you do sort of training camps or were you at home mainly? Because one advantage psychologically for Sepp is that he has been at home. He does live at altitude, but he at least has had that. Yeah, he doesn't have to go on uh, an altitude camp. He is just at home. Uh, he also lives in the mountains. Uh, 
I have to think what I did uh, in between. I think I did uh, like a small training camp in between Giro and the Tour. And uh, between Tour and Vuelta, I did uh, three, four days of criteriums. And then uh, another training camp in Kalpi, I think. So it's uh, I, I still did a training camp, but not like uh, like Seb did. And so just lastly, I mean, it's kind of strange what you guys do in the sense that you sort of compete in three different sports. A lot of you do one-day races, short stage races, and then Grand Tours. Uh, I mean, would you agree that maybe sometimes doing short stage races isn't ideal preparation for Grand Tours and that maybe Grand Tours should be treated as a discipline in itself? Yeah, it's different for sure. Um, three weeks, uh, especially in the third week, your body reacts totally different. You, uh, the Tour de Suisse used to be 10 days and that was the longest uh, stage race that you could do. Uh, but this is like a double Tour de Suisse. Uh, your, your body reacts uh, completely different. Uh, some riders benefit from the third week. Others they they, they like lose their uh, their form a little bit. So so it's different. Uh, it's not for everybody uh, a Grand Tour. Not all the riders like it. Like I don't like uh, the one-day races because it's uh, yeah you have to be everything has to be perfect on this uh, one day. So it's uh, three different disciplines, and it's only a few riders that can do everything. So the, the really top level riders, they can win in a one-day race, uh, go on to win uh, Paris-Nice the, the week after and uh, then go on to win uh, the, uh, the Tour de France or something. So it's only the biggest riders that can do this. Um, and also not a lot of riders are good at all these things. They really have to pick something. La etapa de mañana, la cena de ayer. Tomorrow's stage, yesterday's food. Tom Stehent, not fully, not fully on board um, yet, at least. Um, he's also, I should also add, that he's been struggling in this Vuelta with illness. Um, particularly, well, he told me he'd been sick for the last two weeks, effectively. Another rider, Kenny Ellison, King Kenny, um, also told me that he was struggling this morning with some gastric issues. That's going around the peloton. Um, has been for a few days. Lionel, uh, who's going to be getting indigestion in this final, very difficult mountain stage of the Vuelta España, what we have called, what we're still calling the Superman Lopez stage, the uh, Yo me quedo por aquí, uh, fue un, pla un placer, señores. Who's going to be getting off their bike tomorrow and climbing into a team car to leave the Vuelta España? We said it, well, we, we don't think it's going to be Roglic, but it would be, well, it would be mightily entertaining if it, if it was. I shouldn't really say that, but... And it won't happen. <laughs> it won't happen, Daniel. No, it's also the longest stage of the Welter, 208 kilometres. And it's, it looks like it's going to be as almost a sort of world, mini world championship style one day classic rather than a, a, a sort of mountain stage. Lots of climbing up and down all day. The sort of profile that really strikes fear into the hearts of riders who are struggling through the final week. And, well... I mean, it could be, it could be really aggressive, just in the sense that there's lots of people who will have their eyes on a stage win. We imagine that Jumbo Visma will just just try and keep a, a lid on the uh, the bottle of fizzy pop, no matter how much other people try to shake it up. I would have thought, but we will see. 
they will I think they will let the Remco Evenepoel cork fly off mm. somewhere down the road <laughs> and um, yeah they will try to sort of smother the, the bottle the top of the bottle with a I don't know with a tea towel and try to keep everything else at least <laughs> under control um, yeah, just on speculation though Daniel yes. a, a listener has a bone to pick with you yes. Chris Matheson has written in to say although famously not indulging in speculation in the pre-Vuelta show Daniel did tip Mateusz Govicar that's the Slovenian sprinter with the Bahrain victorious team for at least a few top five finishes using this inside info I put Govicar in my Scorito fantasy cycling team seemingly the only one in my league to do so expecting a bumper return on the sprint stages to put it bluntly i feel more cheated than set kuss on the angley Roo. Uh, i think his best result was 10th in oliva he was 19th today uh, i was going to say that the one thing about this welter that we talked about in the preview was that we really haven't had is there hasn't been that sort of breakthrough performance uh, seven of the stages have been won by ex grand tour winners for a start there are only two uh, to date first time Grand Tour stage winners Andreas Kron and you can't really call his victory a, a sort of I think what about the unpronounceable breakthrough I think the unpronounceable mm. I think our friend well, Kian I was, yeah Kian in the uh, in the top 10 that is the outstanding performance that we may well look back on in two or three years time and say that's where he made his first big mark I mean Jeffrey Soup a great stage win, but at the age of 35, perhaps not one for tomorrow. You know, the, the, the soup is, uh, well, I won't say it's going off, but it's certainly getting to the bottom of the bar. What, what about Joe Dombrowski as a tarot card reader slash fortune teller? He's had a, he's had a breakthrough <laughs> welter. Um, Lionel, I think, we should, I think we should call it a night there and we we'll should. return tomorrow. I think I'm with Brian Nygaard tomorrow. And yeah, I, this is my final Grand Tour stage of the season. So, uh, well, have a good weekend, hopefully. We didn't get to talk about the food. Maybe we'll do that in a sort of Grand Tour wrap-up at the end of the year. I don't know. Um, we'll find time. But our very own set Kuss, Daniel, you're going to make it to Madrid now. Mm-hmm. I know you do the Tour de France on loan to ITV, but uh, completing the Triple Crown again, yeah, how many twen- years in a row is it? Oh, 24 in a row now. I think 24 Grand Tours in a row now. Yeah. Impressive, impressive. Beating Adam Hansen's record. What, what the Italians call a staccano vista. Anyway, Lionel, um, well, thanks for your input tonight and throughout the Vuelta. It's been a pleasure. And um, yeah, we'll be back tomorrow. Thank you very much. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freed, and Lionel Burnham.